0: Nicholas Thompson. Nick Thompson. Nicholas. Nicholas Thompson. One of the great things about journalism is that it's considerably more meritocratic than most fields. If you have a great story, you can get it published in a great publication immediately. You have to learn certain skills you have to write, but um, it is a great, great profession for energetic, ambitious young people. Even if you have the perfect story and you've identified the perfect person to send it to, it gets caught in a filter or they've already assigned a similar story to someone else. So. You have to try, and you have to not be afraid of failure, and that's absolutely one of the key lessons.
1: This is Get mic a podcast about the ins and outs of what it takes to build a notable brand. I'm your host, Katie Zepieri, and I'm also the founder and lead publicist of the Mic Drop Agency. In today's episode, I chat with Nicholas Thompson. Nicholas Thompson is the CEO of The Atlantic and the former editor-in-chief of Wired. He is also a former contributor for CBS News and a co-founder of The Atavist, a national magazine award-winning company that was sold to WordPress. Before that, Nick served as editor of NewYorker.com and as a senior editor at Wired. And if that wasn't keeping Nick busy enough, he is currently building a social media platform called speakeasy.ai to encourage people to engage in positive and productive conversations. On a personal level, Nick has long been a competitive runner. In 2021, he set the American record for men 45 plus in the 50k race. Right now, he is even writing a book about how the mind of a runner works. This was an insightful interview with Nick, where we spoke about the differences between building a personal and company brand, his daily LinkedIn video series, The Most Interesting Thing in Tech, and his approach to continuing to build upon the incredible history and legacy of the Atlantic as a brand. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy listening. Nicholas Thompson, welcome to Get Might.
0: Thank you, Katie. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. This is such a great opportunity to connect with you. And you are certainly a man who wears many hats. And I feel like this is an understatement, just even to start us off here. You're both an entrepreneur as well as a corporate executive. You also have a strong personal brand with over 1.6 million followers on LinkedIn. I'm wondering, how do you manage the dynamics between a company brand and building your personal brand?
0: Well, I focus far more on the company brand. That's 99% of the work. And what's useful is that the personal brand and the company brand support each other in that most of what I do on social media and most of what I do in that format is talk about things that are useful to talk about for the company's sake. I go out and I talk about what's happening in tech. And I'm talking to people who are, potential business partners, potential advertisers, potential subscribers. And so I'm also putting out stories that link people to The Atlantic. So my personal brand has always aligned with my job. Right? I started being active on social media when I worked at The New Yorker and then when I was the editor of Wired and now at The Atlantic. And in all three places, having a good social media presence is useful for you and it's useful for the company because you draws in readers and it draws people who can work with you. So the way I balance it is spend my time on the company and then um, the personal brand kind of follows and supports.
1: Was there a moment where you started thinking intentionally as in, okay, I'm also building a personal brand?
0: Um there was a moment where I started to notice that I had accidentally stumbled into something a little bit unique. Um you know, I had a little bit of a brand for a while on Twitter, which is gone, which has a person who shared interesting long-form stories. And that was, I would was very committed to that. And I would tag them, and I'd put them out at 10 o'clock every night. And then that kind of became not really part of the Twitter culture, and I stepped back from that. On LinkedIn, at some point I started doing these daily videos where I talk about the most interesting thing in tech. I don't even remember when I started, but they took off and they caught on. And what's interesting about it is I also started posting them on Twitter. It didn't work at all there. It just happened to be a thing that worked really well on LinkedIn. And so I started to do it, and it started to get momentum. I would get lots of positive feedback. It was something that nobody else was doing on LinkedIn. So it was less... I started doing that because it was fun, because I was at Wired. It seemed like a good way to kind of spread the message of what we were working on at Wired and what was interesting me at the moment. And then it almost... Sort of by happenstance became um, you know became a fairly important and interesting thing.
1: You had a really interesting um, entry point into journalism, I would say, and <laughs> your sort of your sort of um, you know large piece that you published published was for the Washington Post and it was titled yeah. "Continental Drift." Now, there's oh, a story behind it. that. You found that story. Nick.
0: Sorry, it's not easy to access how you got on Google. There. <laughs> I mean, so it's interesting. I graduated college and was hyper ambitious in college and really focused on doing well at college, but had very little clue what I would do next. I had some notion of going to graduate school, playing guitar, maybe being a journalist, who knew? Um, but when I graduated, I had probably the least well planned out career of any of my peers. And so that's the summer of 1997. In that fall, I meet someone at a party. I talk to her. I get um, invited to apply to be an assistant producer, associate producer at 60 Minutes, CBS. Great job. Um, I get offered the job. I go to New York. I show up. And the top executive there says, who are you? I say, I'm the new associate producer. He says, what have you done in television? I say, nothing. Um, And he fires me on the spot. So shakes me up. Right? What am I doing? But it doesn't actually shake me up as it, much as it would now because, again, I didn't really have a plan. This has sort of fallen into my lap. So then I'm confused about what to do. And one of my best friends, who was starting graduate school in nine months, one of my fellow college um, classmates, said that he was going to go traveling the world, starting in Africa, and he was leaving in two weeks. And I said, great, I'm coming with you. And so I got my vaccinations. Um, I flew to... Um, I guess I flew to Barcelona and we traveled down, we traveled down to Tangiers in Northern Morocco. Um, and the very first day, uh, I'm, I was a a guitarist. It was one of my, still is one of my passions. And I brought my guitar, um, and I start playing in a train station and this guy comes up and he says, would you like to come back to my house and play guitar with my family? It's, you know, Ramadan, would you like to do that? And my friend says, this seems sketchy. I'm going on. Um, and I say, well, you know what? I'll just meet you tomorrow. You know, we have this other plan in and, and Marrakesh. Um, and so the guy says, the guy's name said his name is Muhammad. He comes back to get in the car. And then he starts you know, driving really fast in circles. It starts getting scary. And then takes me back to the house, you know, locks me in a bathroom. turns out that, like, I'm kidnapped. <laughs> um, and so he's a drug dealer and he has these plans and, Goes through all my stuff. It's a scary, frightening experience. It's not, it's not life-threatening, but it's it's frightening and confusing. Um, you know, about twenty-four hours later, he decides I'm useless. Right, I don't have any money with me. I am clearly not going to help him distribute his drugs. He doesn't think he can get any ransom. Who knows what his what his plan is? And so he sort of throws me out on the street, wherever I was. You know, a couple hours away from um, Tangiers. I get to the train station to make my way find my friends, and suddenly I have kind of a crazy story. Um, And so then I'm back with my friend, meet up with a couple other friends. We travel through Africa. And at some point I said, well, I should write about this. And so I find the address of the travel editor of the Washington Post. And I say, hey, I'm in Africa. These things have happened. Can I write a story? She says, sure, write it, send it. And so I write it up and they like it. Um, And so there's a story of a young man traveling in Africa with strange things happening to them, you know, by the time they published it, I think I had, you know, I went down and, you know, through Morocco into Senegal, into Burkina Faso, down into Ghana, over to Togo, and I flew down to South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia. So I had traveled a lot and all kinds of crazy things had happened. And I put them all in a story and there we were. So okay. that was my first what piece. A story. That's, that's how I first that's a- got published in journalism, my first reported story.
1: That is very original, Nick. <laughs> yeah,
0: it was a weird, weird way to get in. Yeah, when young people are like, so how
1: did you get started in journalism? I'm like, well, you know, here's how. <laughs> Don't follow in my footsteps exactly.
0: <laughs> it's not the it's not the best route, but um, it was funny. When, when I got out, when I emerged from the kidnapping, they had taken $60, which is all I had on me. My uh, My friend Aaron, I remember him saying, well, you know, for that experience... Cost you sixty dollars, and you got a pretty great story. It's gonna be worth a lot more than that to you. (laughs) It's like (laughs) screw you. Like help me process my trauma. He's sort of thinking ahead. He was clearly right.
1: To get published in the Washington Post is an incredible accomplishment and really helps set the stage, I think, for what's next and what you can look towards for the future. A lot of people are really nervous about that sort of first pitch, that first getting that first opportunity often feels like the biggest challenge. What advice would you offer to someone in terms of a good pitch and getting a journalist to pay attention and care?
0: Yeah. So you need to find the right person, right? You need to make sure that you've actually identified the person who can make the decision. And the closer you are to that person, the more likely you are to get your pitch accepted, right? So if you Send me a pitch for The Atlantic. I'm not the right person, right? I'm the CEO. I don't have any, I don't oversee editorial, right? The right person is presumably the op-ed editor or the culture editor, the person who's overseeing that. So that's step one. Step two is understanding what they're looking for, right? Each section, each person has a different kind of thing they're trying to do. If you're wired, you're pitching a story about gear. It's very different if you're pitching a magazine feature story. Um, So you have to identify publication the section the person and then you have to very quickly make it appear it's a story that's unique that only you can tell right when you're further in your career the publication will trust you to write about anything when you're unknown it has to be something incredibly distinct right so if you're a person who's unknown and you say hey I'd like to write about the republican presidential candidates there's no way you're going to get assigned that story because everybody can write about the republican presidential candidates it will be assigned to the person with the best track record who is trusted to write the best story. But if you say, hey, here's this thing I saw, or here's this thing I know, or here's this thing I encountered, or here's this thing I figured out, you have a much better chance. And then writing style matters a lot. In the pitch, in the proposal, the editor will be looking at that, right? And, you know, every publication cares about it a ton, particularly, you know, the ones I've worked at, where there's a real particular voice, a real particular style. So I still remember the woman's name. Her name was Casey Summers. And I don't think I have maybe ever met her in person but um I don't know what it was about my pitch that she liked I don't know what it is that caught her eye um you know I had been published before I had written op-eds about you know I had been a sort of a political activist in college and I had written op-eds and so I I was comfortable writing and I had confidence in my voice and I think I had maybe I didn't know how hard it was to get published I just sort of assumed if you wrote a good pitch so I wasn't scared um But I also, you know, I I was used to, those were back in the days of faxes and I would fax op-eds to, you know, a hundred op-ed editors and just see who would take it.
1: Do you think that that's part of it is sort of having the courage to send quite a few pitches and put yourself out there multiple times to have the best chance of getting the right fit?
0: Totally. Yeah. You have to take at bats. And because sometimes you'll, even if you have the perfect story and you've identified the person to send it to it get caught in a filter, or they've already assigned a similar story to someone else, or you know they read it on their phone while they're getting off the subway, and it doesn't catch them because they look at it for two seconds, not six, right? So you have to try, um, and you have to not be afraid of failure, um, and that's absolutely one of the key lessons. I mean, one of the great things about journalism is that it's totally, not totally, it is considerably more meritocratic than most fields, in that if you have a great story, you can get it published in a great publication immediately. You know, if you have a great legal idea, you can't get, you know, you can't pass the bar immediately. You have to go to law school and take the bar exam. So, every profession has sort of different barriers to entry. Journalism's are very low. You have to learn certain skills, you have to write, but um, it is a great great profession for energetic, ambitious young people. And you know, I didn't when I finished college you had asked me what I was likely to do. It was some combination of maybe I'll be a musician, right? If you in in my first two years after college, I worked as a musician. I wrote a co-wrote a book about foreign policy. I worked for a computer company. I tried as hard as I could to become a speechwriter for the government. I applied to probably 100 environmental organizations. And I tried to become a journalist, right? I was totally scattered all over the place, and I applied for PhD programs in economics, right? So. I'm all over the place and whichever one of those seven options had selected me would kind of put me on the path I'm on right now. This is not the right way to operate when you're 22 years old. It just is the way I operated. Um, And journalism just happened to be the best match and I happened to get traction and now 25 years later, I'm still doing it.
1: (laughs) I think um, what's interesting is that throughout your career, you've – you haven't just stayed in one place and you've always had different projects on the go even while you're in one place. So for instance, you're a co-founder of The Atavist and that's a multimedia magazine and software company. How did that come to be?
0: Um, Well, the sort of the general way it came to be is that I loved technology. Um, I was always fascinated by tech. And I wrote a lot about it. And I came out of college in Silicon Valley at the moment of that tech boom. So I had familiarity and excitement about it. And that partly led to me end up getting hired at Wired. While I was at Wired, um, I edited this fascinating series of stories by a guy named Evan Ratliff. And he wrote a story about how hard it is to fake your identity, fake your death, create a new identity and start over. People who tried to do that. And then we ran an experiment where He erased his identity. I served as kind of a public-private investigator. So anything that a standard um, private investigator would have about him, I had. And I would post on Twitter. And Wired readers would try to find him. And it was this fabulous manhunt. And the deal was if anybody could find him within 30 days, they would get $5,000. If he could make it 30 days, he would get $5,000. And... He, uh, he got caught on the 29th day because he had you know, forgotten to use Tor and then someone had tracked his IP address and then followed his fake Twitter account and the guys of a fembot and they knew because we had embedded a clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle that he was in Louisiana and I had posted that he was gluten-free and so they called all the gluten-free pizzerias and the pizza, I mean, it was just this amazing hunt. And so Evan and I afterwards said, well, we should start a company to do kind of more stories like this. We should try to figure out a future of storytelling in which stories aren't just static words on a page. They're more than that. And so we agreed to try to do that. We brought in this third person, uh, Jeff Robb, um, who had um, been a digital designer and had made the web page for a book I had written. And the three of us um, started doing this. And then right while we were in it, the iPad came out. And so we had this wonderful... What began as an idea for Let's Make a Multimedia Magazine became oh, we've built a platform for multimedia storytelling. And so we then created a software company. Um, And so we started with this dream of telling stories. We built this tool so we could tell them. And then by building that tool, we suddenly had great software. And so we had a very cool company for a long time. I, you know, Evan and Jeff ran it, did all the work. I helped, you know, found it and then was a board member advisor. And I continued working um, at Wired and then at the New Yorker during that period.
1: And one of your most uh, recent projects, entrepreneurial endeavors, is building a new social media platform called speakeasy.ai. No small task, Nick.
0: (laughs) No, it's not a small task. It's going fabulously. It's wonderful. Um, So this came about, you know, I work at The Atlantic and The Atlantic is owned by the Emerson Collective. And so I went through this process um, last summer having lunch with a friend of mine named Ian Bremmer. And we were talking, well, what is the biggest, best thing that one could do to make democracy work better at the point of the atlantic is to publish stories that help america understand itself of no party or clique you know we were founded by abolitionists in 1857 um you know what would be the thing that one could do right now to further that mission and the idea was well what if you could make people communicate better online instead of having digital discourse drive people to extremes and drive people to disagree with each other what if you could do the opposite and so i brought this idea to Rafi Krikorian, who is the CTO of the Emerson Collective, so works directly for Louie Powell Jobs, our owner. And Rafi had been the um, VP of engineering at Twitter and um, he'd worked for the DNC and he'd been the head of AI at Uber. He said, I love this. And so Rafi and I got together and we started building this company. And we built a platform and we hired a team. Um, We then built a sort of a closed beta where we tested out Okay, what are the mechanics that can drive people to positive conversations? Okay, what is it about the way you onboard them? What is it about the way you sort conversations? Okay, should, what should the character limits be? Should there be a minimum? Should there be a maximum? How do we deal with trust and anonymity? And so we built all these systems trying to answer every decision in the creation of the platform um, with the North Star of bringing people to have positive, enlightening conversations. Along the way, GPT 3 <laughs> or ChatGPT comes out and GPT 4. You know, we build some really cool AI tools, a smart composer, method for sorting conversations. And then we, you know, close down the little beta we're running and start to um, sign partnerships with all kinds of other publishers, companies, individuals. Um, and we'll have some launch news in the next little while. Rafi is the CEO. He's running the company. We have a great team. They're on the fourth floor. I'm here on the third floor in the uh, Emerson offices in Soho. Um, but we're building it out, and it's exciting. And um, ideally, you'll hear a lot more about it in the months to come.
1: You've got a really powerful statement when you go to speakeasy.ai. Civil dialogue on the internet is no longer an endangered species.
0: (laughs) That's the goal, right? So I'm hopeful that that our software will be built out on all kinds of platforms, sites, partners uh, in the months to come.
1: There really is so much noise on the internet and so many different... um, outlets competing for our attention and I wonder as the CEO of the Atlantic how do you think about building a brand that really cuts through the noise?
0: Um, As the Atlantic's brand? Yeah. I mean the Atlantic has an incredible brand so part of what I mean a lot of publications have to sort of you know kind of put their founders like in a closet or close the door and You sort of have to kind of hide where the brand comes from, right? But our founders, right? I mean, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? We have the greatest collection of founders. We have the most wonderful beginning. We were, you know, (laughs) trying to help America, like, save itself during the Civil War. Um, So we have this amazing history. And then over, you know, the hundred and the next century and a half, right, you have Martin Luther King is writing for the publication. Hemingway is writing for the publication. You have this incredible, incredible history and this incredible archive. And there's all kinds of stuff where we make mistakes. I was, the other day I was looking, I had sorted all the stories over the past week by conversion rate. And there's one story that had a 28% conversion rate. It had seven readers, two of whom had signed up for subscriptions. I was like, what is that? That's crazy. Like the normal conversion rate is like 0.01, right? Um, And... Turns out it's a story about how the earth might be a hollow orb that we published in the 1870s, <laughs> right? So we're not always right. Um, I don't know why people are subscribing off this story, or two of them, but incredible stuff. Um, so anyway, we had this amazing, amazing history. And it's counter, actually, to the perception of media right now in a way that is healthy, right? We have, you know, we publish lots of Republicans. We are not a, we are a distinctly non, try as hard as we can to be a non-partisan publication. We try as hard as we can to be right. We were also, you know, we were a publication that was exceptionally important during the pandemic and had some of the best science coverage that there was. So we have a wonderful brand and the goal is to just sustain that brand, make sure people understand the history, make sure we don't do something that um, distracts that. Like, if we can make people think about the whole history of the atlantic not just the thing we screwed up last tuesday we've done really well so then the question is how do you get more people to know about it? and that's a challenge right that's you know getting out there on social media getting as many people as you can to subscribe to the publication and then there's also a trade off because you know our business model is based on subscriptions in order to drive subscriptions you need to restrict access to some degree to your content which prevents your content from traveling as far as it could so there're a whole bunch of trade offs embedded there but we have a beautiful brand with a beautiful history, and it's much more about getting people, the principal goal is just to get people to understand the core of what we do. And it's 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 nice to work at a place where you really have nothing to hide, right, where you could say, examine everything, and if somebody does that, they'll probably like you more than uh, if they don't.
1: I want to talk a little bit about business models, and I think this is a really interesting topic, especially when it comes to magazines. You've played a key role in implementing digital paywalls at both The New Yorker and Wired, leading to significant increases in digital subscriptions. Yeah. What factors did you consider when you actually created those paywalls, and how did you navigate that challenge?
0: I mean, there are a whole lot of factors you have to weigh. And when we did it at The New Yorker, I was working for David Remnick, who's one of my heroes. Um, we had to model out okay, how tight do you want the paywall to be? Because the tighter you make it, the more you'll restrict readership. And we didn't have any idea how tight you could make it. Secondly, um, with all three publications that have worked on this similar project, there's a trade-off with advertising. And if you restrict viewers because you've put up a paywall and you've tightened access, you reduce page views and you reduce ad impressions, and so you can hurt another part of the business. So that's interesting. Then as we started to build it and as we started to develop it, You start to learn things, right? I remember one of the first learnings we had at The New Yorker was that people weren't subscribing if they only read one category of piece. So I think we had the paywall at four articles or five articles when I began. And if somebody read five political articles and hit the paywall, they would not subscribe. If they read a political article, a science article, a piece of fiction, a poem, and a cultural essay, they would subscribe. So that leads you to a bunch of editorial decisions where, okay, well, if that's the case, then... You should try to strengthen your weakest sections and be as broad as possible. And so, what you're constantly doing is you're constantly trying to adjust your content and adjust the way your paywall works. Now, at The Atlantic, we've, you know, we're massively more sophisticated than we were ten years ago or whenever I first worked on it at The New Yorker. And now we're trying to model out, you know, a much higher level of detail. Right. So, what is the propensity of a subscriber if they come in on a smartphone from a Google referral versus a Reddit referral? What is the percentage of inventory that we've sold at what CPM? What percent is direct? What percent is programmatic? What day of the week it is? What is the story? Right, And you weigh all these different factors as best you can. Right, We don't, we don't weigh them all. Um, and we adjusting the rules based on a meeting yesterday afternoon. But you're looking at many more factors, because what you want is you want someone who's going to subscribe to be told they have to subscribe to read the story, and somebody who's never going to subscribe, because they don't know what the Atlantic is. They just followed a random link on Google or clicked on something on Twitter um, from somebody I have no idea who they are, they're not going to subscribe at all so you want them to be able to read the story but it's hard to figure out exactly who is who. Um, so that's the that's the magic of making a paywall work and we've had tremendous success um, you know at these publications and I think it's been a big part of um, helping helping them find you know financial footing media is hard. Lots of publications are going out of business and having a really tricky time. It's been a social media built a better advertising model than traditional media had. And, you know, we kind of were out-competed, right? If you wanted to reach someone who liked tech in 1999, you would buy an ad in Wired. If You want to reach someone who likes tech in 2023, you will buy an ad on Google against the word tech or on Facebook against the word tech, and you will be able to much more closely target than buying in Wired. So, the way advertising works, we've had to you know, adjust completely. We've had to adapt to a world where there are far fewer ads, but still try to bring in as much as you can. And then you have to build out other business models. So that's been my, the business challenge of the last 10 years of my career.
1: So you have the business focus, obviously, as a CEO um, for The Atlantic. Now, how about from a branding perspective? Clearly, you have your marketing teams and people solely responsible for that. But yeah. how much do you think about the brand the Atlantic as this sort of brand and concept in your day-to-day and how important is that to your role
0: it's very important but it's also different from the way probably many of the listeners think about brand because the brand in some ways to some large degree is whatever we publish that day and the people who go on MSNBC or who go on the radio or who are written about or who are out there tweeting right because we're this collection of journalists saying things in the world and tweeting out old stories, the perception of the brand is both you have these wonderful access to people, right? The number of people who hear the word Atlantic every day massively higher because there are all these journalists with Atlantic in their bio on Twitter and they're off on TV, much higher than if we were just a more narrow company and I was buying advertisements and putting up subway ads. the disadvantage, of course, is it's much less controlled, right? So you have this freewheeling group of people saying all kinds of things. Um, so we don't, we're not running any specific brand campaigns right now. We have, you know, teams of people who think about brand, who talk about the events we need to go to, the way we need to you know, put out our press releases, the stories we need to try to tell. But so much of our brand is just what happens every day. So then... Really, the brand is, you know, it's on the, the, and I should also add that there are huge elements of designer brand. We have the world's greatest designers. Um, we have a brand, you know, a brand Bible that has just been completed and exactly how our font should be, exactly what the feel should be when you come to the site. There are lots of ways we think about brand and the way we present our magazine and on all those surfaces. But it's a little bit different from most other companies because, you know, there's no CMO with the budget. There's a lot of design work there's a lot of communications work. And then there are a lot of journalists out there saying lots of things.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And somehow that all has to come together. To your point, there's this amazing history for the magazine. There's this legacy that's been carried on and continued over time. And somehow all of these different voices and pieces and angles and, you know, new stories somehow contribute to keeping and honoring that brand alive.
0: Absolutely. And that's, In some ways, that's why my job, I feel like my job, my job is fun, but my job also matters because I am carrying on this tradition of a really important American institution and publication and a brand that has been built, you know, through the work of, you know, 160 years of predecessors, um, really I have to I have to sustain it. I have to make sure that the value they've built, you know, maintains and it's it's important and at some point I will hand off the CEO role to somebody else and I want the brand to be incredibly strong and to really mean something and for there to be a direct line between, you know, the early documents, the early founding statements with, you know, all those people with, you know, three word names who created this thing.
1: I want to switch to talking about your personal brand again for a moment and your daily videos on LinkedIn. I look forward to the most interesting thing in tech. <laughs> what actually interests me too, this this could almost be like a, a subtopic of these videos, is you're always in some new random location, Nick. <laughs> it's true.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, I, you know, It started, I have a couple of rules for the videos. So I try to do them in one take. Occasionally it'll be more than one take because I say something wrong or truck will drive by. I try to do them someplace different. You know, occasionally I'll just film in my office because I want to film in my office. But I usually film them as part of my commute. So either when I'm running into work or when I'm running home from work. And that means that I'm somewhere between Brooklyn, and Soho, and I take all kinds of different routes, and I pass all this beautiful stuff while I run. This amazing street art, sculptures, you know, cool cars, um, you know, sometimes wrecked cars. Who knows, right? There's always something amazing. I live in New York City, right? And so part of what I'm doing is trying to show the city. as like It's like a little subplot. Um, I feel like I wish I could give a subscription to everybody who was able to identify the exact location of wherever I am. Um, and so I'm often... And and I do that because it's it's neat and it's interesting and it's different. It's also, it's good for me. It makes me notice things more, right? I notice street art now in a different way from before I started doing that. Um, and then I'm often, you know, I travel a lot for my job. So yesterday I, um, I was talking about Mark Andreessen's essay on AI and I filmed it. I wanted to get a sense of the smog in DC, but I also have this cool deck at our office where if you look carefully, you can see the Pentagon in the distance we um The day before was the crazy smog day. I wasn't running. Um, and so I filmed it on Houston Street to just give, a, which is on my way to the subway, which is just a way to give a sense of the city. I think the day before that, um, I filmed it in front of um, some cool graffiti and some cool street art. This morning when I was running, I didn't have an idea, so I didn't film anything, but I passed some, you know, just a gorgeous, one of my favorite murals, which is on Rivington Street. And I noticed that it's kind of, I don't know a ton about the culture of street art, um, but it's this beautiful portrait of a woman. And... Someone has added graffiti, like lettering, around the framing of it, but hasn't, hasn't crossed out any of the portrait, which is interesting. It's like a respectful adaption. And so I thought well, that would be a great place to film. So at some point, I'm going to go to that alley on Rivington Street um, and film there. Then the idea has just come, you know, I listen to tech podcasts while I run. Um, you know, I read the tech news during the day as it's not really a core part of my job. Um, but it's something I love to do. So I'm reading the tech news, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm talking to people, and then if I have an idea or something that strikes me as interesting, I go for it. So yesterday, right, I read Mark Andreessen's essay. Andreessen's essay is fascinating. I felt like people maybe are misinterpreting it or not thinking through it the right way or over-indexing on one side or the other. So I thought, well, this is a complicated essay. I'll summarize it and say what I think. Um, And it was a little bit longer than normal. I have no idea what I'll do today. Um, I'm going to run home. Maybe I'll (laughs) film it. Maybe I won't.
1: You are actually filming these daily. They're not batched.
0: No, they're daily. Yeah, they're never batched. No, you can tell my outfit (laughs) changes every day. I'm not like, you know, I I don't have multiple outfits in my backpack. I, you know, I just put my wallet, my keys, my cell phone, my microphone. I put them in my backpack. I'm running to and from the work every day and recording them.
1: No, I love it. It's um, it's a little bit of like a where's Waldo, where's Nick kind of thing each time. Yeah. And sometimes you'll I'll, I'll feel like you're set up. You'll just be in sort of this this kind of random spot. And, you know, there's people walking by and I'm like, oh, goodness, is there a car that's coming close here? Like, where is Nick right now? I
0: mean, there's there have been some I mean, there's a guy I, not that long ago where I was filming. I didn't even notice it. And he went pee behind the truck in the background. Like there's weird <laughs> things that happen. One of the I noticed I was checking the comments like that afternoon. I was like, oh um but you know that's it's the city i live in the greatest city in the world i live in an amazing part of it i cross these gorgeous bridges um i pass through these amazing neighborhoods i often will film them you know my kids play soccer in queens right on the border with bushwick which is the greatest street art in the city um so i pass all this cool stuff um and i like having it as backgrounds
1: yeah it's it's wonderful. It's actually how I found you oh, really? uh, initially and, and followed you on LinkedIn. And I think oh, it's that's funny. such a, it's such a good example of you're putting out consistent you know, regular content that people look for expect. Uh, it's it's about the same length each time. It's yeah. two to three minutes usually, and it's it's a great little soundbiter nugget that somebody could just capture in their day and learn something. And if they want to go explore that topic further, it kind of inspires them to do so. I'm wondering if you've been able to measure how. That form of content marketing really for yourself, a personal brand content marketing. Have you been able to measure and track how that affects subscriptions to the Atlantic or interest in the Atlantic? I haven't tracked that.
0: I mean, you can track traffic. I mean, we you have sort of a broad sense of traffic from LinkedIn to the Atlantic. I've never, I've never studied it. I haven't, I haven't done kind of a granular analysis of which ones do well. Occasionally I'll ask my assistant, you know, which ones have done the best because I'm trying to figure out how people are responding to different topics um, I've never I've never dug into those those metrics I think it must have a positive effect and certainly I can tell because you know when I go to conferences people will you know come up and say I love the Atlantic or I love your videos so there's people are clearly watching them and there's tons of commentary on them they're often good conversations there's often good feedback sometimes people are telling me I'm totally wrong um, so they're definitely having an effect but I haven't haven't granularly measured it. They probably were more be, beneficial when I was at Wired when it was more directly tied to the brand. But I think it is helpful for the Atlantic too. We we have wonderful tech coverage.
1: Yeah, it adds a face, I think, to, mm-hmm. to the words, the written publication. And uh, again, it's just a little hint, a little nugget that you can take with you and sort of go and explore further. So I think it's fantastic. I mean, it is interesting
0: that they only really work on LinkedIn, right? When I've I you know, on Twitter, it's too long for Twitter. nobody wants to see it on Twitter. Um, you know, post it on Instagram, but it's not really right for Instagram. People aren't there for kind of tech information. So I do I cross post them on a public Facebook page, but that's a much it's it's much it's really about LinkedIn. Um, it just happens to happens to work there
1: yeah, LinkedIn, the creator, the the role of a creator is really growing on LinkedIn, I feel. Yeah. and it's it's such an interesting space for thought leadership, um, particularly for companies and clients that I'm working with in the b two b space. It's a great way to reach people. And even if, say, the likes or the comments, Uh, aren't the same as what you'd get if you'd have like a a really well watched video on Instagram or TikTok per se. I find the impressions on LinkedIn to be Mm -hmm. quite high when you really get the right topic. And it's interesting because just even having you showing up in someone's feed, them seeing you and getting a sample of what you're speaking about, that is building brand recognition in a really powerful way.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's, I think it's a valuable, it's valuable and has the additional advantage of being fun. Um, and I you know the other thing I like about it is that it you know, I spent my whole life until I started this job as an editor, and one of the great things about being a journalist and one of the things that pulled me in and kept me there is that you learn new stuff every day, right There's a forcing mechanism right? you have to write a story tomorrow, so you have to know what's going on, you have to really pay attention, you have to understand trends in the world. You become a CEO and there's you can get a step removed from that, right where okay, well, today is mostly about you know managing this sort of this HR problem and figuring out where you can like, save costs here and how to manage this investment. And I like, um, I like that I set up the structure of my day so that, well, also, okay, wait, hold on. You know I'm not just listening to you know, audio books about how to be a better CEO when I'm running. I'm listening to the tech news, right? And I'm deep in it. And partly I'm in it because I love it. And partly I'm in it because I know I'm going to be doing these videos. So it's a nice structural mechanism to keep my mind engaged in this thing I love.
1: I think the other lesson for listeners is you don't have to overthink content. Yeah, I love that you try and do it in one take. I mean, you're a busy person. You can't be planning these in great detail, but... I think just enough that you, you're you multitasking, you're listening to what you need to listen to while you're on your run and kind of thinking about what the topic's gonna be and then you you do it in one go if you can. And just that commitment of showing up daily could sometimes be scary for people, but I think we've seen the power. You've been doing this for about how many years now, Nick? Five years, six years? I don't know,
0: like a long time. I'm, I, I should go back. I'm pretty sure I started at Wired because- it's more of—I don't think I would have done it at the New Yorker because it's a little off. It's not—it's not as on brand for the New Yorker um, as it is for Wired. It's very on brand for Wired, which is both obviously more about tech, but also a little like zanier. Um, and the editor of Wired should have a weird tech series in front of graffiti, whereas you know the web editor at the New Yorker should not. Um, so I'm sure I started it at Wired. I just and I probably started it fairly early because I feel like I've been doing it for a long time. Um, but I don't know exactly.
1: You mentioned running, and I thought it was really interesting to learn that you run to work, and yeah. you run home from work, and that's part of your your daily practice. In 2021, you also set the American record in the 50K for men age 40 to 45. That's a remarkable accomplishment, while you're also leading so many other um, projects and a CEO, no less. So, I'm curious, how has running and that aspect and that discipline shaped your approach to your business, to business and and life?
0: I think running is a fundamental part of my life and there are lessons from running that I apply to the way I work and there are lessons from the way I work that I apply to running. Um, you know, in sort of the most specific level, it's a psychological break, right? It's, I'm outside, I view running as something close to a form of meditation um you know if i have any form of meditation in my life it's running right i play with my kids i get the house ready make breakfast i run to work i work do my job i run home play with my kids right so it's a it has like a psychological function but there're also things you learn and there're habits you learn from running that are super helpful to work right there's you know the sense that if you when you run you notice that if you just keep doing it right and if you're deliberate about it and if you go much every day and sometimes you push yourself hard, you just get better, right? And you can feel yourself getting better and you notice yourself getting better. And there's a sort of a, a level of discipline that you can then apply. You also learn mental practices, right? So when you run hard and when you race, you learn how to focus your mind. You learn how to push things to the side. You learn how to concentrate. And the same thing applies actually in a hard job, right? You learn how to stay focused, how to concentrate. And I feel like Obviously, there are ways that having an intense running life detracts from having an intense professional career, but there are also ways they build on each other. And I think some of the mental skills, even without doing it consciously, that I've learned at work have helped my running and that in my running have helped my work. And so I continue to do it. Um, I love it, I enjoy it, but I also think it's I think it's it's valuable. And then there's some 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 other skills you learn when running, you learn about where your maximum is, what it takes to go above your maximum, when your maximum is actually a psychological barrier, when it's a, a real physical, biological barrier. And learning about that isn't as directly applicable to work, but there are ways that it applies. So I've been running, I ran in high school, I ran a little bit in college, but wasn't you know quite good enough and stopped and then took it up again seriously when I was 29. And so I've been running more or less fairly competitively, you know, doing at least a marathon a year at a you know, fairly intense effort, uh, ever since then. And I'm just gonna keep going until I get too injured or too old.
1: <laughs> I, and it's, it's fascinating. You've done some, um, several podcasts about running specifically, you've written about it. So I encourage listeners yeah. if, if they'd like to learn more to, to go check those out.
0: Yeah, I'm writing, I'm writing I, I a book won't... about it now.
1: You're writing a book about it now. What can you tell us about that? It's a story
0: about my life in the sport. It's a story about what I learned about my father through the sport. He's introduced me to it. And then it's portraits of um, characters who I've competed with or whose paths I've crossed in running um, who tell us something about the human condition and how running and the self-awareness that comes with it can help us work through complex situations in life. So it's portraits of different people and stories about myself um, it's coming together, it's coming together pretty, spare time. pretty nicely. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going slowly cause I'm busy, but, um, but I'm, I'm working on it.
1: When, when would you have time to write in a day? I have to ask that.
0: Well, you know, I get up pretty early in the morning and, um, you could write then. Um, I, I can write after the kids go to bed and, you know, when I travel, I can write and, um, you know, there's always time It you can always and it's also, I'm, you know, I'm writing a book about running that is based personally, partly on personal experience, right? It's not like I'm, you know, trying to unearth, you know, the secret documents that explain, you know, why the Berlin Wall went up, right? Um, I don't have to be in a library; I can just be on my couch. So it makes it, it makes it simpler. But it is also true that you know, my editor is listening now. Like, I am aware that it's not going as fast as they would have liked when they have signed this.
1: <laughs> I think they understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to move into the mic drop lightning round. I've got oh a couple boy. quick Irrifying. questions for you here. Let's do it. <laughs> it's fun is the word <laughs> that excellent, you're excellent, looking excellent, for.
0: <laughs> excellent. Yes, that was the word I was missing. Sorry, Katie.
1: <laughs> Okay. Um. First up, I would love you to complete this sentence. To me, building a notable brand means
0: staying authentic to yourself. It's much easier to build a. It's much easier to, kind of like what I was saying about the Atlantic, it's much easier to build a great brand if it's a, if there's a, a real story to tell that's true.
1: What has been a memorable mic drop moment for your brand? And this can be for the company, this can be personally.
0: Oh, I mean, we just, this spring, we just won our the third year in a row, we won a Pulitzer and the second year in a row we won the highest award in our industry for general excellence. And so um, that that's pretty awesome. When we won the ASME for general excellence, it was
1: amazing. What's one brand that you admire and why?
0: You know, I love Tracksmith. It's a running brand that um, makes beautiful clothing, tells beautiful stories, has grown in wonderful ways. Um, and every, everything they make is great
1: what are three resources you'd recommend to someone looking to build their personal or corporate brand?
0: Jeez. Um, can I ask you that question? What do you recommend? (laughs) I mean, I haven't, I haven't studied brand building. I mean, so I would, okay. So one of the things that I did, um, is when I started to spend time on social media, I made a list of the people who I thought were, had like really good brands or personalities on social media. Right. And I, would follow their accounts and I would watch them. And I'd say, what are they doing? What are they not doing? Right. So I guess that's social media lists is number one, right? Who's doing it well? Watch them. Um, the best book I've read on, it's not on brand specifically, but my favorite book on business recently, which has brand elements, is Claire Hughes Johnson Scaling People. And um, you know, the New Yorker did an amazing job of maintaining its brand. Um, through the books it's published, through the way it went out in the world. And so I would read one of the New Yorker's books on, like, cats or dogs, which is, like, very carefully crafted to both be fun and be sophisticated.
1: Nick, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Oh, it was so much fun to talk with you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for all these great questions. Thanks for, you know, reading through all these things about my life. I'm impressed with your level of preparation there. And finding that Washington Post article, That's that's legit.
1: <laughs> it was enjoyable to do. You're um, I feel like you're a person who is extremely curious about life and I really admire that you chase and pursue those curiosities.
0: You're very you're very kind to say that. So, thank you very much. It was a great to great to talk with you here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Get Mic'd. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review we're excited about continuing to bring forward more conversations with thought leaders on what it takes to build a notable brand. We'll see you next time.